The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. I am your host, Mary Woods, and I'm the CEO of Westbridge Community Services. And today we are going to be talking about fetal alcohol Spectrum Disorders, and our guest today is Dr. Kathy Norgard. Uh, Dr. Norgard consults and teaches locally and internationally in the field of psychodrama and is an associate faculty member at the Arizona State University College of Public Programs. She has worked extensively assisting political refugees who are seeking asylum. She also speaks and advocates for the prevention and early detection of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and she is involved in prison reform. Dr. Norgard authored Hard to Place, a Crime of Alcohol. It's a book. Um, she's also done a book on Montessori teaching method, and she's co-authored a text on child abuse and neglect and various other articles. Dr. Norgard, thank you so much for agreeing to be on our show today. Thank you. And I want you to know I just finished your uh, book, Hard to Place, a Crime of Alcohol, and and, and just my heart is just uh, full. <laughs> um, and I want you know, I just went through a wide range of emotions reading your book, and maybe you could begin by talking to our audience a little bit about um, Hard to Place the Crime of Alcohol and, and why you wrote the book. Okay. Well, I started writing it. Uh, my son, John, committed a pretty horrific, a very horrific crime here in um, southern Arizona. He killed two people, which I talk about in the book. And uh, originally I thought I was writing a book to end the death penalty because I couldn't imagine any other parent going through such a situation as we did when John was sentenced to death for these, uh, for these crimes. But as time went on and I struggled with writing this kind of a personal account, it was really clear to me that the book really had... It did have to do with the death penalty, but it but it also really had to do with the issue of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome and the spectrum disorders, because they I I came to know that there are so many people crowding our our justice system who have been affected uh, through no fault of their own with uh, permanent brain damage as a result of their their mom their birth mom drinking when uh during pregnancy so the book really took on a, a turn as i worked on it and and my hope was because it's the book reads sort of like a true crime novel um that people would really get the message young women young men people of all ages that it's not okay to drink when you're pregnant well i think that um uh, unfortunately, a lot of women are drinking and don't realize they're pregnant and don't even realize that there may have been some type of effect by 
um, even a very limited amount of alcohol use in the in the first trimester. Right, and and you know, and it's not something that uh, that is a direct cause and effect. Some women are lucky enough when they're drinking when they're pregnant, and their babies seem to turn out fine. And others can drink a small amount or a large amount when their babies are not okay. Right. But I think um, you know, I, maybe the message is that for people who are not using birth control, who are sexually active, that it's not okay to drink alcohol. Right, right. You know, I in reading your book and um, in working in this profession for a number of years, what what strikes me as as an addiction counselor, we never screen adults for fetal alcohol effects, or we never even think about that, like in team meetings. And and I'm just thinking how striking uh, little we know about fetal alcohol effects. Right, and I am sure because I've also done a fair amount of work in uh, treatment centers, people who are suffering from addiction, that a lot of those folks have had, uh, you know, have that issue. Right. But it certainly populates our prisons. I, I don't know that we have a very accurate account, but it is huge. And, um, you know, the problem is that people are punished before they're born. They're punished their whole life as a result of this brain damage, and then they're punished further for things that they probably are not able to uh, have a lot of control over. Right, right. Um, can you just share with us a little bit about fetal alcohol syndrome um, in terms of, because it, it doesn't always look the same in everyone, does it? Well, no, it doesn't. And I'm, uh, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert. It's, it's kind of later in my career that, that I became certainly much more aware of it, but uh, there's a whole spectrum of disorders, and some people are affected in a, in a small or lesser way, and others uh, more severe. Alcohol ingested prenatally is the is the largest cause of mental retardation. Although not everybody that has mental retardation uh, had a birth mother who was drinking. So, uh, I mean, that's that's certainly an extreme end when somebody has mental retardation, but but. You know, it can affect, uh, in a a lot of ways, where kids have trouble learning, um, have trouble with social issues, or maybe they have some kind of birth defects, you know, that show up as physical anomalies. I mean, it's just a whole range of things. And and I don't know that we are sophisticated enough yet to, you know, to be able to even ferret some of that out. No, and I know in looking, um, in reviewing the literature on fetal alcohol syndrome and fetal alcohol effects um, prior to our show, uh, certainly for fetal alcohol syndrome, there are certain facial characteristics that are used in the diagnosis of that, which include small eyes with drooping upper lids. Um, People often have a short upturned nose, uh, flattened cheeks or a small jaw, thin upper lip, and they have a flattened um, groove in the middle of their upper lip. Right. And um, that's very, from a physical point of view, that's very easy to detect. However, in, in reading the literature, fetal alcohol effects, those kids usually don't have those facial characteristics, but they may have some type of uh, learning disability or um, delayed development that may be, that may be they're in um, some type of program for um, developmental disabilities. 
Um, they often have uh, problems uh, with empathy and um, may be diagnosed as antisocial when, in fact, their brains have just been affected um, in the womb by alcohol and they just aren't wired, um, quote-unquote, normally. Right, right. That's exactly true. And, I, you know, and again, I mean, we've got some tests that will show things about what's happened with the brain, but... A lot of times the corpus callosum, the uh, membrane that connects the right and left side of the brain, has been affected by alcohol. And so, like in my son's case, and I talk about this in Hard to Place, he uh, he can't get information from the right to the left side, so he can learn something with his right hand, but he can't necessarily transfer it to his left. And he has, under, you know, what's called normal intelligence, he had trouble learning, he was short, that's a whole other thing, uh, the stature, the physical stature of, of kids, he, he kind of reached his own as he became an adult. But, um, you know, that has never changed, this whole ability to be able to express his feelings in words or maybe even to even know what he feels like or that whole issue of empathy. Um, he just, he doesn't have the capacity. I remember I, um, in your book, one of your friends early on said he just doesn't think the way we do. There's right. Just, there's just something in his brain that's different. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and it was very frustrating because um, John, my son, was born in 1967, so it was really at an, during an era where we didn't really think about or know a whole lot about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. And it really wasn't until Michael Doris's book, The Broken Cord, came out that it became more well-known just as an as a issue, a public health issue for the general public. We took John to so many different people trying to figure out how to help him because he did things like uh, take things that didn't belong to him, uh, had trouble learning, and, and, you know, a lot of the other kinds of things that people with FAS um, have, and nobody ever suspected that, and nor did we. And so he was an anomaly. Nobody could figure it out. Do you think and today so I think would... there's, there's three issues. I mean, of course, the most important is preventing this and uh, really discouraging drinking, for people who are sexually active and childbearing age if they're not using some kind of birth control. And the second is uh, early diagnosis, and the third is to have some capacity to care for these people if if we as a society are going to produce them. Do you think today we would be any better um, at diagnosing John than we were in 1967? I would hope so. You know, I would hope so. Um, you know, he was the he was diagnosed really retroactively, and if you read Hard to Place, you know that it was based on his birth mother's uh, confession of drinking when she was pregnant with him. It was also based on uh, baby pictures and and a whole social history of what it was like for him growing up. And the third um, was this geneticist coming into the courtroom during his resentencing, and uh, you know, putting all this together and giving him that diagnosis at that time. It was pretty uh, dramatic. Um, yeah, and I think in the book, when you went back to visit his uh, birth family, his sister had similar issues around lying. Yeah. Um, and his father 
as well. So you wonder if this wasn't, if John wasn't maybe the second or third generation fetal alcohol effects or... Well, yeah, it's hard to know because his uh, his birth family, his birth father <clears throat> was killed committing a pretty ridiculous crime. He was taking money from a pinball machine and went running out the back door of this facility and the police came running in and, and shot him in the back. Um and you know it was a it was a pretty silly crime, and I think people with f a s typically are not good criminals. they do get caught, and uh they do things and they don't necessarily know why or they don't need to do them and they're just because their reasoning isn't like yours and mine and we'll be right back after this break um to talk more with Dr. Norgard and to talk more about hard to place a crime of alcohol. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Catherine Norgard, who wrote Hard to Place, a Crime of Alcohol, which is a book about her experience with her adoptive son, John, who was placed 14 times before uh, Kathy and her husband adopted him and um, struggled through 
his early life with uh, developmental delays, with stealing and um, other types of challenges, while also being a very loving child that had a beautiful smile and uh, was uh, often liked to sit in your lap. And I'm just wondering, um, you had mentioned in our last segment about the horrific crimes that John committed. And can you walk us through with, um, you know, just basically what happened and um, and what how that affected your family? Well, like I said earlier, he um, he ended up, and it's kind of a long story, so I'll shorten it. But he ended up killing two elderly people here in Tucson who were in their home and were befriending him. And uh, when he was apprehended. Um, I was really a novice, although I'd testified in court cases, child abuse, sexual abuse, and so on. I I guess I didn't realize um, sort of the humanity of our justice system. And what I mean by humanity is that it's just composed of human beings who are flawed and um, are like all the rest of us. It's not not above that. So I just uh, thought that when the police uh, told us that John had committed this crime, that they had evidence, and that it was a fact. I later learned that that wasn't the case. They didn't necessarily have evidence, but there's a lot of pressure on police to solve these kind of horrific crimes. Um, I knew we had a death penalty in a state of Arizona, and I had made my own opinions about it based on facts and moral values a long time ago, but certainly it was never anything that touched my life. But when John was sentenced to death and had an inadequate, from my opinion, uh, defense team, um, we were just stunned and devastated. And um, I have a birth daughter, had a husband, myself, an extended family, and it uh, it just threw our life into a deep hole. And I wasn't sure... I wasn't sure that I could survive it. I mean, there's the horror of John's crime, which there's no way to reconcile, and then topping that off is the horror that my government, people like you and me, were now going to kill my son. Uh, Anyway, it was just a lot of years of, um, you know, a lot of real emotion, uh, pain and suffering, and, and not wanting to wake up in the morning and face another day. And it affected all of us. People would say, well, it's nice to have each other to lean on, but the reality is uh, we couldn't lean on each other because we were all just so emotionally fragile. Fortunately, a lot of really good people in the community came forward and uh, befriended us. Or I'm not sure that, you know, that I'd be here today. It's such an awful experience. Going to death row meeting other families who have uh, family members who've been sentenced to death. Uh, There's a high suicide rate on the part of parents. There's a high rate of clinical depression. There's a high rate of people just moving away, trying to run away from it, you know, get some kind of a geographical cure. And uh, and there's also just a, a high rate of people who are underrepresented who end up on death row. And I learned about money justice. The more money you have, the more justice you get, uh, which I did not know before. 
We had the AJ uh, OJ Simpson trial at, shortly after John was sentenced to death, and you know our whole nation saw this quote dream team of attorneys, whether you know Simpson was guilty or not, but the effort that went into uh, a defense for him. So it was, uh, you know, it was just devastating. And I was teaching college at the time. I had a private practice and. Um, and I felt like I needed to tell people because I, if I was impaired in some way, they needed to be able to evaluate that and make you know decisions about whether to have me in that role with them. So it just affected every corner of my life, and um, there were a lot of years. It it really took um, you know getting John resentenced, and although prison is a pretty dreary place. And it, too, is comprised of human beings. Some of them are really good human beings, and others um, are less so and have their own issues that probably get played out in the prison system. Life is different than death, and having somebody alive in prison is very different than having the clock tick uh, waiting for an execution. You know, um, I think it was it eight years from the time that John committed the crime till he was resentenced. Yeah, I think it was he was sentenced in ninety one, and it was about ninety seven, so it was about six years okay. that he was on death row. Yeah. Um, but prior to committing the crime, he had been in a juvenile de- detention center um, that was more high risk, and then he was transferred to like a low risk. Uh, detention center where he was able to hop the eight-foot fence. Right. It was probably a six-foot fence, but, yeah, and that was an error on the part of the Department of Corrections. Again, it's made up of human beings. He had been, he'd had an incident where he'd had a a romantic relationship with a female guard, was placed in a, a punitive prison, and then erroneously placed in this low-security prison right after that. And I'm not quite sure, uh, probably will never know what happened to him when he was in that uh, punitive place. The guard resigned, um, and he was punished for, I think it was, well, it seems like it was about a month, and then they misplaced him, uh, which, again, is part of the title of the book, Hard to Place. They put him in the wrong place, and he was broken to some degree and just hopped the fence and left, left that prison. They called it an escape, but uh, you and I could have also hopped that fence. It was, you know, very minimum security. So it was really an error on the part of the prison system that he was placed in the wrong place, and um, a lot of heads rolled after that, after he committed this horrific crime while he was on the run. You know, in your book you talk about um, whether it's the Department of Corrections or just the Department of Prisons, and, you know, without, I mean, as you said, they're made up of human beings and human error, but it seemed to me like some of the um, policies just didn't make sense. Um, When I saw you speak at Cape Cod, you talked about going to visit him and having brown slacks on, and you couldn't get in to visit with brown slacks on. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and and everything you had to do to be able to get in to visit your son. Um, you know, one guard was nice enough to let you take the wedding album in from your daughter, but some another guard would have told you no. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's a, 
that's a that reflects a state policy and that uh, there is really very little effort to rehabilitate or correct people. So there's when they go to prison, and a lot of people are in these heavy maximum security prisons and are released right to the street, and it's a revolving door because, of course, they end up again back in prison because there's not any help on the outside and there hasn't been any transition on the inside. So, you know, we have this uh, bulging prison population, and it's it's a big business. It's a huge part of our budget in the state, and there have been studies that show that we're not really any safer. The crime rate doesn't really go down. The more people we have in prison or, you know, locked up, uh, it has more to do with the cyclical nature of crime that has, you know, a lot of variables that impact it. But our prisons don't really uh, protect us. If, If anything, I mean, I think a lot of times they make things worse. I mean, there are cases where people go in and have time to reflect and they change themselves, but... Most people who go in need help. Right. Uh, they really need help to change their life around or to have structure on the outside. Like John, if he were out, would need structure on the outside. He right. um, doesn't have that frontal lobe capacity to make you know, good decisions and so on and so forth. So you know, if he ever had the miracle of being out, he would need help out here. He'd need a lot of, a lot of structure. And I well, think there are a lot of people like that and so we warehouse them and we put these prisons in places where we don't see them um we pass by on the freeway and they're off the freeway and um a lot of people are employed i mean it's a it's a relatively high paying job for somebody with a high school degree to be a prison guard yeah i know that you know once we started privatizing prisons you knew there had to be money in it because yeah. otherwise uh the private industry wouldn't embrace them that's a whole another um, that's a whole another radio show cuz i'll tell you i mean those private prisons are on the stock market yeah yeah um you know and it's been my experience in working with folks with mental illness and substance use disorders that when people go to prison they learn how to survive in prison they don't learn how to survive in the community Mm -hmm. and so that when they come out the skills that they have learned have kept them alive in prison but those are the exact same skills that are going to get them in trouble in the community yeah that's a good point you know yeah i mean it's it's really a house of horrors in many ways and like i said there's an awful lot of good people working in prisons but um their hands are tied because of our policies and certainly i mean i know people we've had people on the show that have had um, a catharsis in prison and were able to turn their life around, but, um, you know, they weren't in the heavy-duty prisons usually, and uh, they had some type of, uh, um, and most of these folks had substance use disorders, that they had some type of grounding and um, coping mechanisms before they got into trouble with alcohol and drugs, so they had something to fall back on, mm-hmm. you know. Right. So, We'll be right back um, after this next commercial with Dr. Norgood and talking more about hard to place a crime of alcohol. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Everyone is unique in their health as well as their illness. Therefore, achieving optimal health is a personal journey. Join host Pamela Hyen for Creating Your Healthy Life, a program made to educate, encourage, and empower you on your personal journey. Pamela and her guests will explore the who, what, and why of alternative health and many more subjects of interest. Listen for Creating Your Healthy Life, Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you want to put the pep back in your step, Chad Lafferty's has just what you're looking for. Dance is life. Life is dance. It's only about dance. It's about moving through life with style, gaining awareness of the never-ending, ever-flowing movement that accompanies all of life's activities. Dance is life. Life is dance. Broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. Be sure to tune in and tap into the limitless healing that dance can provide. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking with Dr. Catherine Norgard, who wrote Hard to Place, A Crime of Alcohol. And um, prior to going to the break, we were talking about um, your experience with your son, John. And John must be in his early 40s now? Yes. Yeah, and he is uh, 40, I think he's 42. I'd have to add it up. <laughs> What has been what has it been like for him to be in jail? Because um, he's been there a good part of his life. Yeah. Well, it's a long haul, and um, you know he talks about. <coughs> excuse me. He talks about uh, his life really is in the past rather than the present. He he's always been a person who's been able to make the best of things, and um, he has really kept physically fit. So he uh, he still you know tells tall tales and as far as uh, uh, the prison knows he was in the Marines and um, was a boot camp instructor so he actually uh, teaches a fitness course because <laughs> a lot of people in prison get pretty depressed and sit around and watch TV and eat uh, bad prison food or or buy food from the commissary their families can send them money and they. The obesity rate is high there and so on and so forth. So he teaches a, uh, a physical fitness class, and he has taken a few classes, uh, community college, 
he completed because uh, now he's in a he's in a medium security prison. He completed a course in horticulture, which was pretty amazing. Uh, the prison doesn't use that in any way, but he completed this course, and so his sister, who lives in Colorado, flew down, and I went up. My husband just uh, died last year, so he missed this, but um, John actually graduated, and it was one of the first positive things in his life in a long, long time. But he still, you know, he still makes uh, bad decisions, and, um, you know, it's pretty endless trying to help him. He, right after he got off death row, he was, uh, and I talk about this in Hard to Place, he was stabbed. Um, and, again, we'll never know exactly what that was about, whether it was an Aryan Brotherhood thing or, or what that was. But, anyway, so the prison and its lack of wisdom put him in a uh, sensory deprivation um, prison for his, quote, own protection because he refused to testify against the assailants. And if you're in prison, you do not testify against people if if you want to stay alive, and anybody would, would figure that out. So he was in this sensory deprivation prison for, uh, I think it was about three years, and I finally managed to advocate for him and get him uh, into another prison where he had a little more chance for a life. These sensory deprivation prisons are prisons where people never see the sun, they're locked down 24-7 except for uh, three two-hour periods during the week where they can exercise in a pen, again, where there's no sun. They take a couple of showers. Anyway, while he was there, uh, he got a job in the library, the prison library. Basically, what that meant is he got to get out of his cell every day. He got to take a shower every day, which was a very big deal to him. And he was able to put books in paper bags that then were delivered to inmates. They have, when people uh, send books to an inmate, the inmates can donate them to the library and then other inmates can read them. Well, he was uh, working at this, very happy about it. He was working with a a non-prison employee, a a librarian-type person who came in, and then one day no longer had the job. So I called the the warden, um, and I said, you know, what's up? He's in prison for a long time, and this is very important for him to have some quality of life. And the warden said, well, he was uh, making pictures of other prisoners' IDs, and they, in turn, were making passports and whatnot. And, you know, part of that is the whole ludicrousy of prison. I mean, these guys are locked up in these cages with nothing to do, so they think of things to do, like making passports. So the next time I went to visit John, I was really upset with him. I said, John, what on earth were you thinking? I'm now talking to him behind a glass. We're both on telephones, and they can monitor these calls. And he said, well, you know, Mom, they can't can't prove that I was uh, photocopying these pictures. And this is, the, this is his thinking. He, and uh, I said, John, there's one photocopy machine in the whole prison that inmates have access to, and that was the one where you were, and you were the only one in the prison. And then he said to me, well, you know, I, I just wanted to help them out. They wanted to send the pictures to their girlfriends, and I just wanted to be their friends. So, again, it's that thinking uh, right. where he just doesn't get it. And I could sit and try to be logical with him till the cows came home and 
it would seem like he'd get it, but if I'd walk away, I'm not sure if he'd get it. And there's so many, there's so many people, you know, like that in prison where uh, they just don't have the capacity. And most people in our prison don't have visitors, and they don't have that lifeline to the outside world. So it's a, yeah, it's a pretty dreary situation, and it, yeah, it's dreary for me. I've been visiting him in prison really since he was 16 years old. I can think of a lot of other things I'd rather do on a on a Saturday or Sunday than make a long drive to a prison and either talk to him behind a glass or, uh, as I can now, sit and play Scrabble with him. At least it's you know it's a lot more humane. Yeah. But uh, prisons are, uh, you, you know, we need to we need to be updating our thinking about them and changing what we do because we spend a heck of a lot of money on our prison system, and we get very little return. Um, when you were talking, I was thinking about um, some of the other folks that you mentioned in the book. Um, you, I think her name was Adele. Mm-hmm. Her, her husband was on death row. There was a young man by the name of Mike who was in one of the prisons with John, mm-hmm. who was very spiritual. Um, yeah, Mike's still on death row. Um, Adele's husband was executed and maintained his innocence till the very end. And I, you know, I don't know if he was innocent or not, but but I do know that our death penalty system is flawed, just like any system that has human beings. There was a woman in Oklahoma who was working in a DNA lab and um, had a lot of pressure to, quote, again, solve crimes and was falsifying the DNA evidence. So we think that we're modern and scientific and and we can be absolutely sure. There's a case just recently in Texas where there's a lot of concern that an an innocent person has been executed. A lot of people have been exonerated from death rows across the country. I think the number's in the hundreds um, because they were later found to be uh, innocent after spending lots and lots of years on death row. So there's, there's... you know, everything that has to do with humans is going to be flawed because we're human. Um, Adele was devastated. She believed her husband was innocent. My friend Mike, who I have been corresponding with ever since uh, I knew about him, um, has no family, has no contact unless it's lawyers, um, has been on death row for 20 years and has now lost an appeal and has been told that he's likely to be executed in the next two years. He was driving the car, and his stepbrother went into a store and uh, killed some people. So Mike was caught up in the sweep of being uh, charged and convicted of felony murder because he refused to testify against his brother. So there's just a lot of human tragedy, and we sweep it under the rug and put it in our prisons. And we'll be right back um, for our final segment with Dr. Norgard, and we'll talk about more about the death penalty and, and what we can do to eradicate it. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. For several decades, homeopathy has been associated with more than just natural healing. What exactly is homeopathy, and how can it benefit your total health, lifestyle, and overall well-being? Tune in to Homeopathy Health and Transformation, when host classical homeopath Linda Morse will take you through the philosophy behind homeopathy, and with special guests, explain how its principles can be applied to many aspects of modern-day healthy living. Homeopathy Health and Transformation airs live Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Many of us try to maintain a healthy lifestyle, but there is just so much going on in our lives. Food allergies, picky eaters, tight schedules, and the like. We also have so much to think about. Weight management, disease prevention, eating psychology, and creating a healthy meal in minutes. Listen for Nutrition Matters and let Roxanne Moore step in to save you from the overwhelming sea of nutrition information. Roxanne will share success tips to keep you winning with over 15 years as a registered dietitian. Listen for Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Hi, this is Dr. Vijaya Nair. Together with my dear friend, Dr. Howard Piper, we are hosting our own show called Kiss Your Life Hello. We are two internationally recognized experts, researchers, authors, and health advocates in holistic medicine and counseling. We promise you a fantastic show with interesting guest experts to educate and entertain you with the latest information on mind, body, and spirit wellness. Join us on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. See you there. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Dr. Catherine Norgard. Uh, we would like to like finish our show today about talking about the death penalty, and um, Dr. Norgard certainly has been very intimate with uh, the effects of, of having um, her son um, on death row. So could you be just tell our audience a little bit about, um, you know, what... What does it cost to keep someone on death row versus what it costs to execute someone? Um... Well, they've done a number of studies, and as I mentioned, the DPIC, which is Death Penalty Information Center <clears throat> website, I think it's DPIC.org, uh, has a lot of those facts and also has information about which states have and don't have the death penalty. But the cost is anywhere from 2 to $3 million or upwards to execute someone and usually people are held in prison. I mean, the average stay on death row is minimally 10 years by the time uh, all the appeals are finished. But for most people, it's a lot longer. Like my friend Mike has been on for over 20 years. Uh, you compare that to the price of holding somebody in a maximum security prison at $30,000 a year. Lifespans are shortened when you're in prison because it's a very hard life. So we're talking about less, far less than a million dollars to hold someone in a very secure facility where they cannot hurt anyone um, versus spending all this money to execute them. What's happening now nationally is that people are looking at this cost issue. They're, and it depends, you know, it depends on what county in a state you commit a crime because some counties don't have the money to be able to prosecute and ask for the death penalty so they don't, uh, whereas the county right next door is, um, is still asking for the death penalty. In the county where I live, there are ten, currently 10 cases where the county attorney is asking for the death penalty. But if that same person committed a crime down the road in another county, they wouldn't get it just because the county was out of money and couldn't afford it. So it's so pretty capricious. Once again, the whole money justice yeah. syndrome. Yeah. Um, you were saying during the break, too, that up until recently, children could have been um, executed under Arizona state law. Nationally, they could, yeah. Nationally? And that, that is now a national law passed by the Supreme Court a couple of years ago that we can no longer execute children. And, you know, it is considered a major human rights violation. Amnesty International, um, very concerned about the United States, because most industrialized nations, with the exception of perhaps Japan and China, eliminated the death penalty a long time ago. After World War II, <clears throat> all of Europe abolished the death penalty. They no longer ever wanted their government in charge of uh, what citizens could be killed after the Hitler experience. Right. So, and Japan is weakening on the death penalty. And I think I think we are. I think in my lifetime we're going to change it and uh, rise to a standard that we deserve. Well, I, I thought it was really interesting that um, if somebody is executed, what's put on their death certificate is they died by homicide. Right. Yeah, the cause of death is homicide. That's is that kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. And my granddaughter was 11 at the time of John's crime. I have a step-granddaughter and 9 or 11, I don't remember, and she wrote a letter to the judge and said, you know, judge, um, my uncle did wrong and, he, you know, I can see why you need to punish him, but the way I see it, 
you know, if you kill him and then who kills you? It just keeps going on and on and on. Right. And I think that's it. I mean, why do we kill people who kill people to show that killing is wrong? I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. No. Kind of, you kind of wonder about our frontal lobe, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, are there organizations that people can get involved in if they're if they want to do something to help eradicate the death penalty? There are, and like I said, the, there's certainly that DPIC.org, and there's also the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty that has uh, information about all the states in Arizona. There's the Coalition of Arizonans to Abolish the Death Penalty has a website. I think now in this day and age of Internet, it's very easy just to go on the, on the web and take a look and get involved. And, um, you know, it's an important issue for, on many fronts. Is there a pro-death penalty movement as well? Are there people that are really entrenched in keeping it? Well, I think there are people who are entrenched. Uh, I don't know of any organization per se, but when we've had executions in Arizona, which fortunately we haven't had for quite a while, uh, the prison relegates one part of the prison to be able to um, have a vigil for people who um, want the death penalty ended, and there's another area for people that that want to you know want to see this person executed. So I know there are people who uh, still believe in the death penalty, but um, you know I think it's a matter where we expect our leaders in government to be smart and aware, and, you know, the leaders need to step up. England abolished the death penalty a long time ago, and yet probably the preponderance of um, people living in England still support it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of the things I was thinking about, we, my daughter and I went to Pennsylvania this summer, and we went to Philadelphia, the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is now closed and they they have tours of it and they're trying to keep it as a historical um, site because it was one of the first times when they tried to look at uh, humane um, this whole idea of uh, penance being you put somebody in a in a um, I guess destimulated environment and it gives them time to, to think. kind of think think and that the, the penitentiary was set up so each person had their own private room. Mm-hmm. They had uh, a skylight in the room, and then they had, like, a little area off the back of the room, like they had, like, their own little porch. And um, and they, you know, they came in with a hood over their face so nobody knew who they were, and they rarely ever saw anyone else, but they had sunlight and they had fresh air. And, and it seemed like, you know, a couple hundred years ago, people were trying a little bit more to understand um, how do we treat people who have committed crimes? I mean, I, we walked in there and thought, oh, my God, this place is awful. But, you know, 200 years ago it was state-of-the-art, and they thought they were doing something uh, much more humane. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I think the, the Quakers are attributed with kind of starting the prison system based on that whole notion. As Quakers spend time meditating and in silence, and the thinking was that, if someone's committed a crime and they could have some time out just to think, they could come come to their senses. And, I, you know, that might make sense for a, a lot of situations, but certainly wouldn't help when somebody has a fetal alcohol syndrome or right. some kind of mental illness. Uh, all the thinking in the world isn't going to change it. Right. Or it may just make it worse. <laughs> right. Right. 
you know, and it, this whole idea of punishment is, um, to me, so backwards. It's like the kids who get in trouble from school get suspended, so they have a week or two of free time to get right. more trouble. I mean, it just seems like we're counter. It's so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think there are still people that think punishment works, but certainly there aren't any studies that uh, support that. Right. Right. And I. I know in certainly in treatment of substance use disorders, um, letting people hit bottom and, uh, you know, is like that's what you're supposed to be able to do, even if bottom means death, you know. Um, and it's like we, we blame people for what's wrong with them rather than try to be creative in how we help them. Right, yeah. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to buy hard to place? Um, it's uh, it's listed. Uh, you can get a hold of it at uh, Amazon.com. Uh, just look up under Catherine Norgard and Hard to Place a Crime of Alcohol. And if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way to get in touch with you? Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, the publisher has a website and a way to email. It's Recovery Resources Press, and I can get emails that way. Okay, so recoveryresourcespress.com? Uh, it's either .com or .org. <laughs> oh, okay. So one or the other, people yeah. can, uh, either one, it'll get, one of them will work. Right, and the other way you can get a hold of me, somebody just reached me the other day, is through the Coalition of Arizonans to Abolish the Death Penalty. You can send an email there and they manage to get it to me some way. Okay. So if you have one um, closing thought for folks, if you're sexually active, don't drink. Right. And do you have another one? Well, if you're sexually active, use some protection (laughs) (laughs) so that, you know, if you decide to drink. And I think think the other thing is to, to just we all need to be reaching for compassion rather than punishment and, uh, you know, just heaping more on people that have already been damaged. Right, right. And I think um, certainly from my perspective, it's certainly this book is certainly a call to look at how we assess adults with substance use disorders and uh, what are we doing to identify if they have fetal effects syndrome or maybe some of the reasons that they just don't get it is because they just don't get it. It's right, because they can't get it. Or because they're... Um, antisocial, they just can't get it. Mm-hmm. So That's um, right. Thank you so much for being a guest on our Well, show thanks today. for the opportunity. And um, we'll look forward to seeing you in the future. I hope to see you again. I enjoyed your uh, talk at the Cape Cod Symposium. And Yeah, okay. thanks a lot, Mary. Yeah, I hope to see you. Thanks, Kathy. Have thanks. a good week. Bye. Have a good week, everyone. Bye-bye. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program. Brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.